Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Plenty to share with you this hour on this December 15th News Buzz edition. This week, I'm sure you heard, Tesla recalled more than 2 million vehicles. Uh, in just a few minutes, concerns over its autopilot safety explained. Dan McGee of the University of Iowa's Driving Safety Research Institute uh, with us, uh, uh, with his view of the Tesla recall, and the future of fully self-driving cars. Also, Vanessa Miller of the Gazette on why faculty at the University of Northern Iowa are seeking an end to general fund support for athletics there. Also, we kick off a series that takes a home state view of presidential candidates. We'll hear from a New Jersey journalist who's covered Chris Christie for many years. And at the end of our program, Mark Simmet will be along of IPR Studio One to groove us into the weekend with some alternative holiday tunes. But first... A display during this holiday season at the state capitol has been sparking a debate over free speech and religious liberty. Last week, the Satanic Temple Iowa, that's a chapter of a national organization, installed a display that features a statue of a goat-headed figure that is often used to represent Satan. Let's talk about it uh, with Caleb McCullough. He's been covering it. He is the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Quad City Times. Welcome to our program, Caleb. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Iowans touring the state capitol this week, of course, had the opportunity to see a nativity scene, but also this one installed by the Satanic Temple. Describe uh, the display and the messages the display meant to communicate. Yeah, so it's a, it's a display that was put up by the Iowa chapter of the Satanic Temple. Um, it's a non-religious, non-theistic uh, organization that uses Satan to represent humanistic um, values and uh, rational values. Um, and so they put up this this uh, statue that, uh, as you said, featured um, goat-headed figure. Baphomet is, is the name of it. Um, and it was wearing a red cape with a red wreath on it with a upside-down pentagram, another common um, uh, Satanist and occult uh, symbol. And then, and then also on the display were a number of tenets. They are the uh, seven tenets of uh, the Satanic Temple. Um, the group said that they advocate for bodily autonomy, a rejection of arbitrary authority, recognizing our own fallibility, and inspiring nobility in thought and action. Uh, so it's uh, th- those are kind of the the visual uh, things that are going on in that in that display. And just to be clear, uh, Caleb, you know they went through the proper um, process to have this display okayed for that space. That's correct, yeah. So any uh, individual or organization can apply to the Department of Administrative Services. Uh, It's a state agency to put up a display or hold an event at the Capitol. So they went through that uh, process. They were allowed to put that up for two weeks um, and had that approved. Mm -hmm. So last week it goes up and images of the Satanic Temple display circulating quickly on social media last week. Tell us a little bit about the reaction. Yeah, so there was quite a bit of reaction, and it even reached to some national uh, conservative figures, which I was surprised to see. Um, but a lot of calls to remove the the statue um, from Christian conservatives, people who thought that it uh, that it offended the uh, what, what they saw as the cultural tradition or the cultural founding, the the Christian founding of of the country and of the state. Um, but then, of course, there was the the um, 
uh, other side of that argument that this is a uh, religious expression protected by the First Amendment, protected by the Constitution, um, that, that, you know, this, this is something that uh, our our constitution allows and that it should remain up. And so there is this argument uh, uh, a lot on social media, but then it kind of spilled into, uh, you know, our elected officials, at least one Republican lawmaker uh, called for it to be taken down. Um, and then another Republican lawmaker uh, has said, you know, that it should should remain up because because of the, the freedom of, of religion. And we, we also saw from Governor Reynolds, um, she said she disagrees with the display, but she told opponents that, you know, she wanted them to engage in speech and prayer rather than uh, advocate for it to be taken down. Um, so her uh, quote, she said, in a free society, the best response to objectionable speech is more speech. And she encouraged those of faith to join me in today in prayer over the Capitol and recognizing the nativity scene that will be on display. Okay, so there was indeed uh, a prayer event held because of this display. People came out to it? That's right. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty pretty large. Um, the the people who were organizing said it was more than they expected and, and more than usual. I guess there's a weekly prayer event at the Capitol on Tuesdays, but this was much bigger than usual. So they um, held an event, had some speakers, had some uh, prayer, uh, and and set up this nativity scene, um, which is set up by the Thomas More Society. That is a conservative legal uh, firm that that advocates for uh, conservative causes. And uh, so they, they put up this display in the Capitol as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, in your article, write about uh, other reaction here from the uh, Interfaith Alliance of Iowa, a liberal advocacy organization. What did they have to say here? Yeah, that's right. So they um, took issue with the, uh, the statement that the governor made. Um, they thought that she was taking uh, a firm pro-Christian stance, which as a as a governor, as a state elected official, they thought that she should not be privileging one, one religion over another in her uh, in her public statements. So they you know, said that the governor of Iowa may be a Christian herself, but in this democracy grounded in religious freedom, she is not a Christian governor. And they said she should never elevate her, uh, one belief above all other beliefs. And she is accountable to every Iowan. She should promise to do better and to inclusively represent and uphold the freedoms of every Iowan, regardless of the political influences to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. So they had issue with her, you know, calling for prayer, calling uh, to prefer the, the Christian religious display over the uh, satanic temple display. Caleb, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about specifically the Republican response here, uh, a split here. Uh, tell us more uh, about um, the state uh, lawmakers who uh, had differing opinions about this display. Yeah, so Republican Representative Brad Sherman, he's a Republican from Williamsburg. He's a he's a pastor and often uh, you know appeals to to his Christian faith uh, when he is uh, making public remarks at the the Capitol. Uh, he said that the the display should not be protected religious speech, and his argument was because uh, the Iowa Constitution makes a reference to God. They, the Iowa Constitution says that the people of Iowa are grateful to the supreme being for the blessings hitherto enjoyed. And so his argument was um, that, that that shows that Iowa has a Christian foundation and that the religious uh, freedom does not extend to Satan and Satanism, which he said is the enemy of God. And so uh, his ar- that, that was kind of his argument that that specific type of display should not be protected free speech. Um, now, that, of course, under the Supreme Court and First Amendment precedent is not what our uh, national, what, what our law says, but that was his argument. 
Mm-hmm. And on the also a Republican, a Republican from Newton, uh, State Representative John Dunwell disagreed uh, with his uh, Republican colleague. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, John Dunwell, he's a Republican from Newton. He's also a Christian and they um, has spent some time leading ministries. Uh, you know, he's made clear he does not support the display. He thinks it's uh, objectionable. But he said that the principles of religious freedom that are set up by our state and our national constitution are more important than, you know, the discomfort that, that he might feel over that. And he says, you know, as a politician, as an elected official, he's most concerned with freedom. And he said to me, I don't want the government telling me what's an appropriate religious display and what is not an appropriate religious display, because if they can do that against something that I find objectionable, at some point that same government can do that to me. Mm-hmm. So he kind of took a, took a view of, you know, we, need, we can't privilege any specific religion because uh, those those foundations allow each person to practice their own religion how they see fit. Mm-hmm. This week there was an event commemorating the nativity scene at the, the state capitol, um, and uh, I think you, you spoke with people there about um, this uh, satanic temple display? I did, yeah, and I got some differing uh, views. I, I didn't get anybody um, particularly making that argument that um, the state should take it down, but but you know I got some disapproval. Um, one woman I spoke to, she was, when I got there, she was actually standing in front of it and praying. And I asked her, you know, what, what her thoughts were on it um, afterward. And she said that she's not opposed to it being up, but she um, was praying for, uh, you know, in her view, for the people who put it up to uh, change their views and, and become Christians. And that she, uh, you know, she said she's not opposed to it. She doesn't hate the people who put it up, but she uh, wanted them to, to find God and or to know the love of God in her, in her words. Uh, so that was her reaction. And then another man I spoke to, um, a pastor at a Des Moines church, um, he kind of took that, a similar view to, to Representative Sherman, um, saying that the, the display went against the, what he saw as the cultural tradition of Iowa and kind of the Christian foundation of Iowa. Um, he said that he isn't sure what the legal, you know, response should be, but he told me that he, uh, he felt he wanted to come and tear it down himself, but he said, uh, he also needs to be a law-abiding citizen. Well, then, Caleb, yesterday, in fact, we heard news that this display, the Satanic Temple display at the Iowa State Capitol, had been vandalized. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So we saw um, in photos shared by members of the Satanic Temple um, that the statue had been knocked down. The goat head uh, on top of the statue had been destroyed, taken apart, um, and attempted to be thrown in the trash. Um, the rest of the display is still up, but the group said that they would they were planning on taking it down today regardless. Um, and we've since learned that Michael Cassidy, uh, a man from Mississippi, uh, was charged with fourth-degree cr- criminal mischief for uh, destroying the statue. Uh, we're not sure of any other details of, of that um, crime or that complaint, but that is uh, he is the person who's been charged with that um, act. Mm-hmm. But but it was planned that this display would have been taken down today anyway or soon, right? That's right. Yeah, it was it was set to be through in the Capitol for two weeks. Um, and it would have ended on Saturday, and I think that um, the the Satanic Temple Iowa said that they were planning on taking it down Friday. Okay, Caleb McCullough, Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Quad City Times. Uh, fascinating um, that a display uh, during this holiday season at the state capitol sparking debate uh, over free speech and religious liberty. Caleb, nice to have you on the program. Happy to be on. Thank you so much.
Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. This week, Tesla recalled more than 2 million vehicles over autopilot safety. Uh, the future of self-driving cars, I'll discuss that with Dan McGeehee of the University of Iowa's Driving Safety Research Institute in just a moment. But first, faculty at the University of Northern Iowa are seeking an end to support from the general fund for Panther Athletics. Vanessa Miller joins me now, the Gazette's higher education reporter. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, how are you? I am fine, thank you. Evidently, over the past two years, reading your reporting, about 900000 has been transferred from UNI's general fund to cover a shortfall in their athletics budget. Give us some background on that transfer and why the UNI faculty union in particular is voicing concerns. Yeah, yeah. Well, that um, that uh, $900,000 covering the shortfall was actually just the one year, the fiscal one year. So it's over a million over two years. Um, and this is so in total, uh, the general campus provided in the fiscal 2023 year, um, like 5.5 million. And that wow. was for both general support and scholarship support. What the mm-hmm. faculty union was raising concerns about was that that over the two-year period was more than a million more than they had budgeted to to provide athletics. And they're saying that the administration did that without consulting um, the faculty. They just provided that overage um, without um, telling anybody or asking anybody, and it was just reported in the Board of Regents comprehensive fiscal report. So they were kind of raising concerns around that. And then also just saying in general, um, there should come and, you know, these athletics, the resident system, all these auxiliary enterprises should be self-supporting like they are at Iowa State and University of Iowa because they need that general education support for general education, you know, for the academics side of things is what the faculty are saying. Yeah, dig into that a little bit because I, uh, most of us don't understand that the athletics at the University of Iowa and Iowa State University, the two other public universities, are self-sustaining. What does that mean, self-sustaining? Um, it means that they cover their um, expenses with the revenue that they generate from things like ticket sales, um, from things like foundation support. But, you know, for the University of Iowa, largely it's from the Big Ten, the Athletics Conference, and for their Learfield multimedia contract, you know, so the Big Ten, the athletics conference um, last year provided nearly $60 million to the University of Iowa Athletics. So that was a big reason they were able to be self-sustaining. Um, you know, similarly, uh, the Big 12 for Iowa State provides a, a huge chunk of revenue, which is helpful. I think their, um, their Big 12 conference support was 50, or $40.6 million. Last year, um, meanwhile, the University of Northern Iowa uh, gets much less than that. So in terms of their conference, they got 
uh, 1.6 million. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's just quite different. It's, um, and, and so of course, like, like I said, the other two can sustain their operations with their own revenue where University of Northern Iowa Athletics just can't. And, and a little bit more on that, am I understanding correctly, like at the University of Iowa, um, it's not that the athletics department doesn't have a budget, it does, but it brings back more than that budget, than they're budgeted, and then that, that extra surplus can go to help fund other uh, athletics that have a lesser appeal or, or have a little or, or no um, uh, ability uh, to earn money, as the football team does. Sure. Yeah. Like football, obviously, is the big money maker at the University of Iowa. Um, of course, they do get uh, money from basketball revenue, of course, and, and wrestling and women's basketball are big money makers um, for the University of Iowa, for example. But again, their biggest revenue pot. I mean, so football last year generated twenty three point eight million dollars in uh, ticket sales. And again, they got nearly sixty million from the athletic conference. So it's just mm-hmm. far and away they get more money, you know, to support the rest of their budget and their spending from the athletic conference than, for example, you, you and I. So that's part yeah. of the reason that you and I needs more support from just the campus to sustain its operations. Yeah, and b- back to you and I. Tell us more about the uh, well, the faculty union presidents, uh, you know, point there about you know what should be at the center of a university's monies when when they've had to endure cutbacks on their academic programs. Yeah, yeah. They're saying that UNI has had a hard time paying faculty and sustaining faculty and keeping their numbers up. Obviously, um, tuition revenue has actually gone down for Northern Iowa because enrollment has gone down for Northern Iowa. So um, tuition revenue, you know, in 2019 was 79 million in 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 2023 it was 64.9 million so tuition tuition revenue is going down and so you know you can look at the faculty numbers dropping as well you can look at this the amount that they paid in salaries dropped from 136.2 million in 2019 to 2123 million this last year so so they're spending less on faculty because they have less in, in tuition support, and they're cutting programs and other things along the way. And the faculty are just saying, listen, we need this money that you're sending over to athletics because yeah. we want to bolster our academics. How has the University of Northern Iowa's administration responded? Well, they acknowledged that, that yes, the center of U- University of Northern Iowa's mission is scholarship, academics, research, things like that. Um, But also say that athletics plays a large role in that. They're saying that um, it's integral to help driving student applications, admissions, financial support, giving, donations. People love athletics, you know, and it's part of the reason they come to a college campus. It's part of the reason they donate to a college campus. It's part of the reason, it's how they engage alumni, for example. So so they're saying we can't just dismiss athletics and not support it. We, we want to see both our student athletes and our programming there succeed, as well as the, the students um, who aren't athletes and, you know, but, but like students that aren't, they want to go to the games too. So they're saying this is like a big part of our campus and and they need uh, general support, and it's been that way for decades. It's not just like a new thing that you and I is providing general education support to athletics. It's been that way for, like I said, decades. Mm-hmm. I wonder how this is likely to be resolved. I know the faculty union president at UNI said, well, we need some shared governance, not just to be surprised 
about this uh, and seeing it at a Board of Regents um, fiscal report, right? Yeah, right. Like, I mean, they they do suggest that they're going to engage the faculty more on this topic. And and I'll quote here from the spokesman of UNI, because this was kind of a telling comment to me. He said, one of the ongoing directives for our athletics department is to generate more revenue and to identify additional opportunities for our athletics department to be more self-sustaining. More self-sustaining. So it does sound like they are looking at making changes in that area and in looking at ways that UNI Athletics can, again, support itself more than it does right now, at least. Okay. Interesting story. Vanessa Miller, Gazette Higher Education reporter. Thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, thank you. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, I see more and more Tesla cars tooling around uh, these days. I'm sure you do, too. Uh, perhaps you have one. So some news this week, especially for drivers of these cutting-edge electric vehicles, Tesla issued a recall covering almost all of the cars it has sold in the U.S., roughly 2 million vehicles, due to a software defect in the vehicle system that's meant to monitor whether drivers are paying attention while using the vehicle's autopilot feature. Joining us now, Dan McGeehy, Director of the Driving Safety Research Institute at the University of Iowa. Hi, Dan. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. To this uh, Tesla news, safety regulators getting tougher on Tesla after multiple investigations opened in recent years into collisions involving the autopilot technology, also fatalities. Explain how this autopilot system works and uh, what you see as the failure here. Well, let's dial back to conventional cruise control, which most of us have had experience with for quite some time. You set a speed, you drive down the highway, it doesn't uh, decelerate or brake, you have to pay attention. So when you come across a slow truck, uh, you have to put on the brakes, change lanes. The next generation of cruise control, which is called adaptive cruise control, which is available today on most new cars, adjusts the distance between you and the car ahead automatically, decelerates and so forth. We also have lane keeping systems that keep us in the lane if we drift out, gently puts us back. That's a conventional technology today. Autopilot is sort of a misnomer of a name and quite controversial because it sort of connotes that there is some automation. But this is along the same class as many other vehicles uh, that are on the road today. But they allow it to go a little bit further uh, in terms of its steering and so forth than most uh, other car makers. Mm -hmm. And this is really where the problem is because people then quit paying attention. Yeah, and and what I understand from reading about this is these crashes happen when the autopilot is used on inappropriate roads? Correct. And so uh, what Tesla uh, has said and, and other car makers like General Motors has Super Cruise, Ford has Blue Cruise. These are extended um, periods of time on open freeways where there are multiple lanes and limited access. Uh, and they are what's called geofence. So they only work, uh, the car knows where it is and will only work on, say, I-80 or I-35 in Iowa is a good example of a limited access freeway. Uh, however, Tesla has not done that previously. And so you can be in downtown Ames or Iowa City and turn on autopilot over about 25 miles an hour. Uh, and it will sort of drive itself, but mm. it's not ready or prepared to take on necessarily pedestrians and cars turning in front and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the, the fix, based on what you just said, seems to be to, to, to tell this, to, to, to have this software not function 
on roads that are deemed inappropriate. Is that what the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is saying here? Yeah, so uh, the federal regulators, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, are going to do two things. Uh, essentially, what we're, we think they're going to do is require uh, that they uh, know where the vehicle is before they will allow this particular autopilot feature to be used. And second, they're going to be issuing more salient alerts to drivers uh, that may not be necessarily paying attention. And in Tesla's case, they monitor the steering wheel. And so mm. if it doesn't really sense that you're doing much steering, they assume that you're not paying attention. So there's no like eye tracking or something that looks at the driver's eyes or the pose of the head that some technologies today look at. Does it strike you as funny that Tesla didn't already restrict this with its software? It seems like, I don't want to say a no-brainer, I'm not an engineer like you are, but really have this autopilot function only function, be allowed to function where appropriate, where it's safe. It's a really good point. And I think you have to really go back to Elon Musk, uh, who's extremely aspirational and is an expert at executing very advanced visions, whether they be in rockets or electric vehicles or battery technology. He really wanted to and currently still wants to push for a fully automated Tesla and so this was his way of sort of nudging that along by sort of making it a commonplace uh, experience so that you would really get a sense to how the vehicle feels and responds to the world. Mm -hmm. I understand that Tesla vehicles also went in, under investigation for how this autopilot function works uh, around crash scenes. Yes, uh, this is uh, something that uh, we've also participated in. The National Transportation Safety Board, uh, who most of your listeners uh, know as the, the people who investigate big plane crashes and rail crashes, also investigate Tesla and automated vehicle crashes. Uh, we've actually reconstructed one crash for them, uh, uh, a fatal crash in California. Uh, of a Tesla and use the National Advanced Driving Simulator. So coming here to the University of Iowa to help in that investigation. But one of the, uh, the I wouldn't say common, but a feature is that for whatever reason, if you have a fire truck parked in the, in the middle of a highway at a crash scene, there are several cases where the Tesla has not seen it and driven into it at full speed. Mm. Also on, uh, under investigation, a feature on a Tesla feature that lets and I'm, <laughs> this is astounding. Let's drivers play video games on a front center touchscreen while the car in motion. This is not a passenger. This is a driver playing video games while you're speeding down the highway. I think this is really for what they call full self-driving. And I think that's really, again, sort of an aspirational thing. Mm -hmm. This is, I think one of the issues is that a lot of Tesla owners can figure out loopholes uh, mm. and how to game the system, pun intended, uh, to see how they can make the system really be automated when it's really not an automated vehicle. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit of the, the research going on at your institute. Tell us more about what's going on. Do, do you, t you, you test with Tesla? Yeah, we're not funded by Tesla. We uh, are independent. We, we will do research for auto, auto companies um, and the federal government to look at safety regulations and what the issues are. We have done work with uh, – uh, we have a research Tesla that's specially instrumented where we actually ran a study where we would give it away for a week at a time and look at commuting patterns between people and from Iowa City to Cedar Rapids and back every day mm. to look at sort of the transfer of control between 
autopilot and normal driving. So it's really that transition, handing over control to higher, um, I don't want to say automation, but uh, more assistance, if you will. Because these technologies really are designed to look over the driver's shoulder. And if you drift out of your lane slightly, it gently mm -hmm. corrects you. If a car is going slow ahead of you, it puts on the brakes, slows down, and so forth to assist the driver. Mm -hmm. The next generation that's not out yet is really going to be where the driver has to look over the computer shoulder, which we already know in other contexts is is not good. Is not good. Yeah. It, it, will that that next step be approaching quickly within the next five years? Uh, what do you What do you think? Yeah, it's. I think f implementation is really tricky because we are. It's well known that humans are not good at monitoring things, and uh, we want to play video games. We want to fiddle with our phone. We want to do work on our laptop. Uh, and not pay attention. Uh, so I think that's it's going to be pretty far away before we get to that long-term automation. Uh, but technologies like Super Cruise from General Motors and Blue Cruise from Ford actually require the driver to look ahead. They have a little camera that looks at your eyes all the time. And if you look away for more than a few seconds, it starts blinking and flashing uh, at you. So mm -hmm. they're very sensitive about that. Mm -hmm. and, and so in a few words, uh, where is, uh, what does this mean for the future of uh, full self-driving technology, this recall? Uh, I think this is still pretty far away. I think uh, Elon Musk has really pushed this uh, way beyond what is conventional in traditional automotive research. I mean, he uses his own customers as beta testers who actually test things versus traditional car companies spend years often testing their systems before they release it to their customers. So this very unconventional, let me just have my customers be our usability testers is frankly dangerous. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't know the limitations many times of what works and what doesn't. Right. Echoes of his approach with his other company, SpaceX. Yes. And <laughs> I highly recommend his biography by Walter Isaacson if you're looking for a good Christmas gift. All right. Dan McGee, director of the Driving Safety Research Institute at the University of Iowa. Dan, thanks for coming in today. Right. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, we kick off a series that takes a home state view of presidential candidates. We'll hear from a New Jersey journalist who's covered Chris Christie for years. When we return, it's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today, the first installment of our River to River series, Home State View, for this 2024 election cycle. Some of you may remember it from four years ago. It's a chance for us to get to know the presidential candidates, uh, and in this series, we're aiming for a different angle on these candidates uh, than given by typical week-by-week -week press coverage that we all consume. So the focus not here on the latest policy pronouncements or gaffes. It's a chance for us to talk about the candidates' families, their political roots, to get to know the figures by talking with journalists from their home states. Today, our focus uh, on current GOP presidential candidate and former governor of New Jersey, uh, Chris Christie. Joining us to do that, Matt Arco, politics and statehouse reporter with the New Jersey Star-Ledger. Matt, thank you 
for joining us from the Garden State. Yes, thanks for having me. You have covered Chris Christie for six years, also his post-governorship time. You write a twice-weekly newsletter, What Makes Christie Run. You're the right guy to talk to on this. Start by telling us a little bit about Chris Christie's early years, his family. He was born and raised in New Jersey, right? Yep, born and raised in New Jersey. The governor got an early start in politics on the local level, but he really didn't come onto the national scene until George W. Bush was elected and tapped him as U.S. attorney for New Jersey. And that really set the stage in a large way to become governor. And then he was, you know, a Republican governor in a blue leading state, a blue heavy state that was elected. He defeated the uh, incumbent Democratic governor, very quickly became a very national figure a very popular person in the Republican Party. Famously, folks were trying to get him to run against Barack Obama. He declined, went on to win re-election in the state in a landslide, and ran for president then, and we all know how that worked out. Yeah, let let me ask you to back up a little bit, Matt. You covered a lot of territory in a short time, but he he was U.S. attorney for New Jersey from 2002 to 2008. Uh, Then, as you said, New Jersey governor winning two terms. He served from 2010 to 2018 and, you know, uh, reelected in 2013 by a really wide margin Uh, to the point that you made. Talk a little bit about how Christie, a Republican, managed to get elected to two terms in a blue state like New Jersey? Because of what made him popular on the national level among Republicans, also made him popular in the state for the most part. He governed as more of a, a, a centrist Republican, so he's not, he's, he's not on the right wing uh, of the party. So he had a pretty solid standing within the state. What tipped him into rock star status was uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit New Jersey, uh, that's when his poll numbers jumped up into, you know, like the 70s. Um, ironically, that is what Iowa voters in particular, uh, or and, and Republicans in general, sort of turned on him because he embraced Obama when Obama visited the state. There's the infamous hug that wasn't really a hug. Um, so because of Hurricane Sandy, though, I mean, he was just in, in rock star status when he was reelected. And it was it was shortly right after that reelection. Uh, that the Bridgegate scandal blew up. And then from that point on, his standing with New Jersey voters just continued to fall up until the time that he uh, left office as one of the least popular governors in the country. Mm -hmm. We remember Bridgegate. That was national news uh, tarnishing his reputation involving a staff member of the then governor and political appointees uh, colluding to create traffic jams in Fort Lee, New Jersey, by closing down <laughs> uh, lanes on the main toll plaza there. Uh, so, so so that was Bridgegate. Talk about his appeal, though, too, as governor. Uh, we know him nationally for his, well, he's notorious for his put-downs and his one-liners, uh, his hard-hitting wry wit. That's always been part of his personality and his appeal. It has, and, and pre-Bridgegate, it always worked for him. What what, what happened with Bridgegate is that uh, it, it, it turned on a dime, and that 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 brash guy persona in and out of side of New Jersey seemed to not work for people anymore. But in Jersey, up until that point, you know, by and large, he you know he didn't do everything that the Democratic base supported, but he was able to do enough. Whether it was you know pension and healthcare reform and some significant things in New Jersey that uh, he was able to work with a Democratic-controlled legislature, so they had to find compromise. 
So before the scandal, a solidly popular person in the state and definitely outside of the state among Republicans right. uh, nationally. And then that then that appeal really plummeting. Am I remembering correctly? At one point in his second term, he had the lowest polling favorability among New Jerseyans of any state governor ever. Could that be? From what I remember, I think it was it was second only to Rob Bogoyevich in, uh, <laughs> in in the Midwest. So so, yeah, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, we do know Rob Blagojevich's name here uh, in our neighboring state of Illinois. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, current campaign. How would you say uh, those in his home state in New Jersey, where you are, uh, view this presidential campaign, his messaging, his policies, his manner? Is it completely a match to how he approached his successful races for governor? I I would probably argue that most New Jerseyans could could care less uh, and probably aren't paying uh, breathless attention to it. Um, he's, you know, unlike the first, last time that he ran for uh, ran for president, he's no longer governor, obviously, now. So I imagine most are just tuning out, to be honest with you. Mm. I think by the time Christie left the office, New Jersey, by and large, had had enough of Chris Christie. Mm. Uh, Chris Christie used to be a very close ally of former President Trump during the Trump presidency, later emerging as a as a harsh critic of Trump uh, uh, following uh, Trump's refusal to accept his loss in the 2020 uh, presidential election, also the subsequent January 6th Capitol attack. Talk a little bit about that reversal from Christie as Trump ally to harsh Trump critic. It's not even just Trump ally. After Christie dropped out of the 2016 race because uh, his poor showing in New Hampshire, uh, he was one of the first main, you know, mainstream Republicans to uh, get behind Donald Trump. He said at the time that that they had been friends, uh, they did have a relationship for a while. So he not only was just an ally, but he gave permission to a lot of other Republicans to start lining up behind Trump, and he worked as the primary went on. Uh, to get more mainstream Republicans to line up behind Trump because he thought correctly that Trump was going to win. Um, the governor says that after the, the president, the former president, uh, refused to concede the election and everything that followed, it, it was enough was enough for him. So he went from you know Trump's supporter to the harshest and loudest critic in the Republican field and in the Republican primary, the, the only ones left. Chris Christie is, unlike many other candidates, um, not spending time here in Iowa campaigning. Why? Well, I think the governor learned a few things from his uh, his 2016 run. And I had predicted that if he ran again, um, and I argued you know, years ago that he would, uh, that he would ignore Iowa this time. And then simply put, Iowa is too conservative for his brand of Republican. New Hampshire fits better. I think the reason that he now the reason that he spent so much time, as much time as he did in Iowa, spent more time in New Hampshire, but he did spend a considerable amount of time in Iowa was because he was really courting Terry Branstad's uh, endorsement. And when that failed to happen, um, I think he probably saw that as as a lot of, frankly put, just to be candid, a a waste of time for his campaign, because, you know, going back to uh, what made him popular in New Jersey you know, embracing Obama in a time when, when the state had just been devastated. I'll tell you, when I was in Iowa in 2015, 2016, 
the thing that I would hear from most from voters there at Republican events was, I can't support the guy. He, you know, he hugged Obama. That's that. Hmm. So it's just the the the, the type of uh, Republican and more unaffiliated independent voter that there's a lot more of those in New Hampshire. That's 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 where he's pinning it all on. Mm-hmm. Matt, what is your sense of how Chris Christie sees his candidacy this time around? Because, as you well know, he's not polling well, certainly not here in Iowa and nationally. Um, a, a dark horse candidate. It's questionable whether he could win any state in the nominating process. Why is he in this race? I mean, some call him a a, a spoiler. Is that the, the sense you get from the candidate? Look, I think all of these folks, once they get to this stage, they 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 see a path for them and then they believe it. And you, you have to believe it if you're going to work this hard at something. And I, I, I Christie would argue himself that uh, perception is everything. So say he does the unthinkable and does really well in New Hampshire after the primary at the end of January. Well, then the narrative sort of changes overnight. Candidly, he's not totally wrong. Media narratives can shift. But I'll tell you, when the governor first entered the race over the summer, and I was following him around in New Hampshire, talking to him about his plan, what he didn't anticipate, what I didn't anticipate, and what I think a lot of other folks didn't anticipate, is that it was around that time that the additional indictments against Donald Trump solidified the base and just really made this thing Donald Trump's uh, race to lose. And that just wasn't in the calculation at the time. It was it was it, I think it took time for pollsters and and, and for uh, focus groups to catch up to the fact that people were more likely to stick with Trump because of those indictments. Yeah. So counterintuitively that, that Chris Christie was betting on these indictments on um, making Trump's popularity plummet when it did exactly the opposite. Is that what you're saying? That and also, and he's saying this now, is that, well, hey, hold on, folks, he's going to be going on trial soon. So, you know, uh, the governor, the former governor this time around is spending his money very conservatively, and he's, he, he's positioning himself to be in the campaign until, and he's saying, until Super Tuesday. But again, it all hinges on New Hampshire. I mean, right now, we just had, well, New Hampshire's very popular incumbent or current governor. Chris Sununu just endorsed Nikki Haley, and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie are running in the same exact lane in this state, except the only difference is, is that since Nikki Haley hasn't said some of these more inflammatory things about Trump, Nikki Haley has some Republican support. As for Christie, his, his unfavorabilities among Republicans is high. I, mean, I want to say it's off the charts. It's not quite off the charts, but it's way higher than it should be. Uh, so he really needs unaffiliated voters, more independent voters. And those are the same people that, that Haley's going for. And Chris Sununu, very popular governor who is going to be campaigning and telling those folks to back Haley. So um, that was a bit of a blow, a bit of another blow to his campaign this week. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, with our home state view of current GOP presidential candidate and former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, thanks to Matt Arco, politics and statehouse reporter with the New Jersey Star-Ledger. Matt, you've given us some great insights. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on December 15th. Of course, let's groove into the weekend. Mark Simmett of IPR Studio One joins me. Hi, Mark. Well, hi, Ben. I see you have a 
couple of alternative holiday treats from Studio One. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we've been enjoying the IPR Studio One Advent Calendar. Remind us how that works. You can can open the doors (laughs) for all 24 artists, can't you? This this is really a a first-time video Advent Calendar for Studio One. Uh, yeah, it's very nice. Everyone should check this out. You can see it at ipr.org slash new music. Uh, not only our Advent calendar, but some other uh, year-end gifts we have there for you. Okay, with that said, Mark, uh, groove us into the weekend. What do you got? Well, you know, I, I wanted to pick a couple of uh, really good holiday tunes for you for uh, this edition of Groove Into the Weekend. Uh, we have received some new stuff here at Studio One. And first up, it's from uh, indie singer-songwriter and guitarist Kurt Vile. Uh, this is one he did not write, though. Uh, it's Must Be Santa. It goes back to actually 1960 when it was written by a couple of professional songwriters. And Mitch Miller uh, recorded the first version of this song. And in, in our own time, uh, Bob Dylan attracted attention to this by doing his own version in kind of a polka uh, klezmer style. And now Kurt Vile has done Must Be Santa, but it's, again, a different arrangement. He sings it in his own particular laid-back style. Who's got a beard that's long and white? Santa's got a beard that's long and white. Who comes around on a special night? 